Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the MedTech Impact Podcast, where you get to hear from leaders and innovators who are shaping the future of medical technology. I'm Kyle Cruz. And I'm Richard Mikuljohn. And we're your hosts of the show. So today we have with us Maria Artenduaga, CEO and founder of Sama Health. Welcome to the show. We're so delighted to have you, Maria. Thanks for the invitation, guys. I appreciate it. Well, this has been a long one coming. We have tracked you down. We've got you here on the show. And so we are delighted to tell the story of Samai. And as always, to kick things off, please tell us what is the big problem that you're looking to solve? Um, yeah, so we are building an AI-enabled um, platform for respiratory health. And we are starting with COPD, also called um, current obstructive pulmonary disease. Um, the main reason why I started a company was because I lost my grandmother to a COPD exacerbation. Just in the States, um, COPD is affecting 30 million people. It's killing about 700,000 people, 150,000 people, and readmitting about 700,000 every single year. It's extremely expensive, about $60 billion. I mean, whatever you see, whatever you're trying to like, you know, figure out COPD, it's one of those big problems that hasn't been solved quite yet. Um, and a few years ago, uh, when I was, I was completing my plastic surgery residency, I lost my grandmother to one of these exacerbations. And I decided to ask a lot of questions um, in regards to like why, you know, she passed. Um, and one of the things that I discovered was that the technologies today are not quite good or adequate for pulmonary function monitoring outside of a hospital. So the status quo right now, what we're trying to fight against are questionnaires. That means 50% of exacerbation events. And every other competitor out there is trying to like repurpose digital stethoscopes somehow uh, that are not quite as good at figuring out pulmonary function. And I can tell you more about what we do with the technology and how it works to, to you know, illustrate how we are probably better than the others. So, yeah. So a really personal story there, Maria. And you mentioned you were already doing your residency at the time when? Yeah, so it's a really many years ago. Yeah, I was doing my plastic surgery residency at the University of Chicago. Um, she passed, uh, things weren't working very well at the surgical residency either way. And I decided to retrain in technology and global public health. So I have a lot of letters after my name. I have a master's in public health through the University of Washington in Seattle. I did two years. And then here in Berkeley, I live in the Bay Area. I did another master's now. It's called Master's of Translational Medicine, where I got trained to accelerate um, university or like deep technology research into products and services. And that's how everything started a couple of years ago. And tell us a little bit more for the listeners about COPD. You know, how many people does this affect and you know, what are some of the key symptoms and effects of it? Yeah, so COPD stands for crank of pulmonary disease. Uh, I'm just going to tell you about the U.S. Uh, statistics. There are 30 million people affected by it, but only half of them are actually diagnosed. Um, if you, you know, read the World Health Organization, it's about 10% of the world's population affected by crank respiratory conditions, and most of them are never diagnosed either way. So COPD, it's sort of a, like an umbrella term. It's sort of like a syndrome. It makes uh, breathing very, very hard. Um, people 
Did you any any of you guys had COVID probably or where do you know somebody who was affected by by COVID during oh, the yes. pandemic? Okay, yep. so imagine feeling the same way as if you had COVID every single day of your life, suffocating, afraid of dying, short breath. If you move, you feel that yeah, you're about to die. That's how they feel every single day. People that are affected by chronic pulmonary disease. So most of them were smokers, but not not necessarily. What we know right now is that it it can be caused by by a series of like different conditions. Either you know you were exposed to pollution air pollutants, you were you know sick when you were little, and you got a pneumonia. It could be also genetic. The fact that also affects more women than men. It's something that is very well studied nowadays. For example, women are more prone to present more shortness of breath and, and symptoms. Also, because our lungs are smaller than the guys, um, we we do have more, you know, symptoms, and we can actually have more exacerbations that 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 men. So it's super interesting, actually, as a as a disease. Uh, even though I I don't come from the internal medicine side of things, uh, it's been quite a journey. Or at least I I enjoy it very much to learn every yeah. single day about the new research that is published. What is what is going on? You know therapeutics and things that other companies are working on. Yeah, Maria, that's great. We always appreciate the background. So does our audience. So I guess Samai's approach, uh, and am I saying the company name correctly? Because before we went live, <laughs> you were helping us yeah. with the uh, how to pronounce yeah. your company name. Yeah, it's called Samai, not Sami. Uh, okay. Like you would pronounce it in English or Hindi. Um, it means to breathe deeply in Quechua. It's a language uh, in indigenous language uh, that it's widely spoken in South America. I'm from Colombia, as you can notice by the accent. Um, we are a team of 15 people, well, 17 people, and most of them are actually located in Latin America, in Colombia particularly. So we're very proud of our roots. And I'm one-third indigenous as well. So according to 23andMe. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I wanted to like, you know, honor my roots somehow, um, especially because, you know, I, I guess it's, People will remember, right? Um, right? It's all about storytelling, and everything I do, I try it. I try to, you know, I I want it to have some meaning. Yeah, absolutely, it makes sense, and that's exactly what the founder's role is, right? Is to tell that story <laughs> in a very captivating and an educational, insightful way. So, tell us about how you're approaching COPD to help improve that current standard of care. Sure. So. One of the things that I really like to tell uh, people about is that I'm trying to solve the problem that killed my grandmother. So right now we have a few solutions, technological solutions that patients are using at home. So for example, we have this that it's a pulse oximeter. Everybody got one of these guys, you know, during the pandemic, right? So what happens is that when patients are suffocated or short, short of breath, they want to figure out their numbers. They want to have some sort of... Um, you know, information to make decisions. Either they need to call a doctor or not, they need to change medications, they can go out for a walk. The problem with pulse oximetry, or at least for a COPD patient, is that it doesn't really tell you much about how your lungs are functioning. When I tell you lung function, what it really means is the amount of air that is coming in and out. So I, I always try to tell the about like, imagine the heart, right? Like, most people are very familiar with their heart. So we have this organ that is pushing out some blood. And the way how we understand how the, the heart is, it is working well, it's 
by measuring the amount of blood that is going in or out, right? Or maybe we have the electrical signals from an EKG. In, in respiratory, for example, we do the same by figuring out how much of that air is, is going in or out. And we ask patients to go to the hospital to do blowing, a blowing exercise just through a huge hospital machine that costs about 60, 60 to $70,000. So what we're doing is like, we're trying to build patches. This is a prototype, it's called Sylvie after my grandmother. So this is a prototype that uses speakers and microphones. And we are attaching that prototype on on the right chest and we are emitting sound to rest to make the lung resonate. When we make our lung resonate, we can understand obviously the volumes of air uh, that are coming in and out because we we know the same stimuli and how is it you know working when somebody is actually like stable. And when patients they start saturating, they start accumulating air inside of our lungs. Obviously, if you remember high school physics, right? That the resonance of an object changes when you have the volume of air that's inside of that object starts to change as well. So the physical characteristics of, of that object changes. Therefore, we can understand when the resonance is changing and more importantly, when somebody is deteriorating, like, you know, their air volumes are changing. So right now what we've done is like, we've tested the device on over 200 people and we have been able to actually diagnose COPD with 90% of accuracy compared to the big hospital machine. And we can also detect uh, exacerbation biomarkers with 83% of accuracy, the respiratory rate during movement also 90, with 99% of precision. I mean, we have a lot of uh, interesting data to 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 show. Um, and I'm super excited because I, I always pitch the company as the Dexcom for respiratory. I don't know if you know what Dexcom is. It's a company that yeah. is building these guys. So I always bring a Dexcom sensor wherever I go. And I tell people, look, I'm building this, but for the lung, that's it. So yeah. I'm trying to do uh, one of the reasons, um, one of the main goals in, in 2024 is to actually raise $4 million so that, that we can productize our prototypes. So it looks like two of these little patches yeah. and you can place them on your lung. We make the lung resonate and we can figure out lung function without asking patients to like blow out through anything or anything so that. Passively for two weeks, just like diabetics do. They just understand how they are feeling. I mean, their lung function. That's it. It makes so much sense. And I love the comparison there. You're comparing yourself to obviously a technology that has come to market and has made a huge impact for patients yes. with dealing with diabetics uh, or diabetes. And now, um, and I think aligning yourself with a technology that's obviously been so impactful, but so successful at the same time. Well, that's got to get some um, early adopters and investors uh, excited. Um, but let's go back to your technology. At what point in the patient life cycle here, like how soon do they start using using your technology? When is it? Do, do they put the Sylvie uh, patch on their body? And yeah. that, That's a really interesting question, Kyle, because the problem that I have right now, it's figuring out my go-to-action strategy. We've done some like, research and customer discovery. We have a lot of interest from um, CROs, pharmaceutical companies. Anyone who's building a therapeutics that actually wants to use our, our device or our solution for their own clinical research. So what we are imagining it to be is, for example, somebody who was recently exacerbated, right? Or it's in the hospital somehow. And we are placing this device on the patients from the moment that they are either, you know, hospitalized. And we can follow them over time to help physicians make decisions on when to discharge those patients home. 
and more importantly, figure out if they need to get readmitted and more importantly, to try to stop that readmission by, by managing those patients much better when they are part of like readmissions of hospital at home programs. So that's the main thing. And why is it that we are doing it? Because right now the way how hospitals or remote patient monitoring companies or anybody else is are trying to to manage patients with COPDs by, by investing a lot of money on people calling them. So again, the reason why my grandmother died was because today the standard of care, even though patients like doing pulse oximetry, doctors, we rely on questionnaires. We ask them questions all the time and we tell them, look, if you have COPD, this is your action plan, meaning every single day you go to this questionnaire, you fill out these questions, and then this is gonna give you a score and we'll give you three different, you know, three different colors. And depending on the color, you do X, Y, or Z. Mm -hmm. So very old school, missing again, 50% of exacerbation. So there is so much, I mean, not truly objective data going on, first of all. And second of all, I mean, you rely on people, right? Like calling you, figuring out, you know, patients need to talk to nurses and nurses, you know, they are born now, they don't have a lot of time. So there is always a delay of diagnosing and management and treatment that's about three to five days when patients, you know, rapidly start declining. And then is when you get either hospitalizations or the readmissions happening that are extremely expensive. So every readmission could be probably $10,000. And every new hospitalization, if you have an ICU admission, it's about 45000 So wow. it's a very expensive disease to manage. And what it's extremely surprising to is that, unfortunately, because we don't have a lot of technological tools out there, most of the hospitals are focusing on other diseases, which is truly, I mean, obviously, okay. But to me, as a granddaughter of somebody who died from COP, I, I find it, you know, Unnerving. I mean, it's pretty upsetting. Well, um, it impacts so many people, you know, to your point. And it is a little shocking to hear that it's not maybe as much of a focus. Um, no. But I think you're the, the value prop that you're kind of describing there, um, especially along the lines of kind of early detection is so important, right? Um, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. that, you know, everyone wants to be proactive. Um, and I think on top of it, you know, saving your, you know, your patient a trip to the hospital, you know, and that scheduling time and the appointment and the big $70,000 piece of equipment that you have to blow into on top of mm -hmm. doing a questionnaire where who knows how you're feeling that day, where, exactly. the, right, you know, people don't even know, like, you, everyone's like, think about it, your pain tolerance for someone else's pain tolerance, everything's so like different. So it's yeah. like, let the data speak for itself, especially, you know, the technology. So it sounds like it's not just a device too. There's there's got to be some sort of software element to uh, your technology. That's we are actually a software company. Yeah, okay. yeah. So even though so so this is the interesting thing we 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 ended up building the hardware because we couldn't figure out this with with a phone, right? We tried really hard <laughs> to be hardware because we know that hardware is very very hard um, and very niche and like makes things obviously very complicated. Uh, we tried with a phone, it didn't work out. So what we are doing is, I mean. Even though we have hardware, it's, it, it is extremely hard to build. We are repurposing hearing aid technology. So we have a micro rate of speakers and microphones on the other end. 
and we're like literally like using off the shelf components. The only thing is that we're placing it on a like you know like a sort of sort of like in a form factor that looks like a patch, so that we can be attached to the chest and we can figure out your numbers twenty four seven. The main idea of doing hardware too on a patch was because before starting a company or even figuring out what is it that we wanted to build, the patients told me, Maria, I want a patch. Dr. Maria, that's what they call me. Uh, I want a patch like the diabetics wear that I place it on my chest for like two weeks or a month or whatever. I get my numbers and doctors believe that what I'm feeling is actually right because they don't believe what I'm telling them. So to me, it is as a, as a, you know, as a company of empowerment of using data and software to, you know, help patients understand how they are feeling, their, you know, their lung function, and more importantly, to prevent early deaths, because every time, if you have an exacerbation, a severe exacerbation, and you are hospitalized, half of those patients are going to die within the five, within the next five years. It's that bad. I mean, preventing exacerbations, it's the key for everything. Having a heart attack is not as bad as having a COPD exacerbation. I didn't know that until very recently that I went to a conference for COPD. The, the statistics are and, and the research is staggering, like really, really shocking. That's that's a that's quite a, a piece of information, information. To draw up here. Um, I didn't know that either. And I mean, and you, I'm a doctor, it, I didn't know that. But even hearing it almost doesn't even sound right. Um, yeah. but wow, okay, thanks for sharing. Um, yeah, that is totally mind blowing, and but it. It's also making me wonder, around, I know you said you haven't really rounded out on that go-to-market strategy, but you're, you're collecting a lot of data. You're clearly listening to the user needs. Do you yeah. have a sense at this stage of like, is there a target segment within COPD? Because yeah, I know you mentioned that it's worse effective for women. Is there any sort of breakdown group you've seen so far where you might target to begin with? Yeah, so I the main idea, the reason why we are uh, also raising for a million right now is because we have a bunch of LOIs uh, from pharmaceuticals and medical technology companies that are willing to actually buy the product pre-FDA, which will help us, you know, get some traction and early revenue to survive <laughs> and keep working on research and development. So what we are planning on doing is, first of all, as many other companies that are working on the remote motoring space is to actually sell the product to remote motoring companies, virtual first companies, so that they can use our product for their own specific COPD population or anything that is respiratory, to be honest. We decided not to build a remote motoring company because it's a very saturated market and we are very good at deep tech instead of like, you know, going big and like sales and establishing, you know, a clinic that is social, et cetera. So we are very good, very differentiated. We already have seven granted patents and that's what we are trying to focus on. And then there are a lot of like, you know, programs, hospital at home programs, value-based company, uh, sorry, companies or even hospitals that are that have their own readmission programs. And we're trying to figure out right now, it's surprising, you know, like if we help them save this, this amount of money, that minus the amount of money that they have to, you know, spend on like nurses visiting these patients or calling them that probably, you know, it's going to cost, you know, about, I don't know, $500 to $1,000 uh, per patient per month or something along those lines. So my main focus in 2024 is to do a lot of customer discovery, talk to a lot of people, probably 100, 200 people so that we can figure out our pricing. Because one of the things that I just um, also 
discovered is that most of our competitors are charging $3,000 per patient per month, but they haven't gotten really any, any real traction. So our cost of goods are fairly low because we are, again, you know, using speakers and microphones, things that are very cheap that you can buy literally like almost anywhere. So our cost of goods right now is about $25 for, you know, the actual device. So we could probably go as low as 30 to 20. So it's it's not, you know, we don't have to charge, you know, $7,000 to, to make a profitable uh, company. So That's a really and, solid and foundation. My, my main goal is to go global, right? I mean, I'm from Colombia. So most of the people dying uh, from COPD are 90% of them are dying in low and middle income countries. So that's my main goal. Amazing. And, and so and that's also incredible that you have this early letters of intent from yeah. big pharma. You know, that's very unheard of in terms of having that initial track. And I'm sure a lot of other startups out there would love to have a similar position yeah. to get that sort of buy-in from big companies. I'd love to go back in, a little bit in terms of like, what we talked about the solution like for a patient who's using this, so you're thinking that they would get this in an outpatient clinic setting um, and would they then be wearing that every day? You know, how, what's that like for that patient experience? Ah, this is a really good question. Um, so we've been, we've been talking to a lot of people, right? Doctors, obviously, they, they don't believe that patients will wear this 24-7. Although when you talk to patients, they will say, they will tell you, you know, I have severe COPD. I've already made so many changes in my day-to-day -day life. This doesn't really add on anything else that, of, of, on top of what I'm already doing. So they say, you know, Maria, as long as this gives, as, as this solution, it, it gives me the numbers, right? It, it empowers me to, to, you know, feel better or at least figure out if, it's, if what I'm feeling is actually right. I will wear this all the time. And more importantly, because exacerbations for them, as I told you, right, they know if they get an exacerbation, they are probably going to be dead within the next two years, right? So there is so much, uh, you know, motivation from the patients to actually wear them. Obviously, like we are not, you know, for example, when we're doing the market sizing, we are not assuming that everybody is going to wear it. It's going to be probably just 50% of them. Also, because we're trying to figure out if our acoustic resonance technology actually works well with like people that are overweight or obese, right? And so one of the main reasons why we are also doing a lot of grants next year, we are planning for about to about two to three other grants from NIH because we wanna also understand if this technology could be actually um could work for obese patients. And there are so many technical questions that we still need to work on. Um, but let's say, you know, the market's so big, there are so many people already affected by it that at least as long as I can, like, say probably a million people every year to me, that's that's more than a win. Yeah, absolutely. That's some big numbers there, Kyle. Yeah. And, you know, I think, too, um, it's just really interesting, uh, Maria, to kind of hear um, how you're thinking about the patients and, you know, I think the obesity thing, obviously, I mean, yeah. obviously in America, there's definitely an issue with that. And a lot of folks, I, I don't know if that kind of goes hand in hand, but either way, you know, you know, making sure your products work on, on everyone is so critically important. Um, mm -hmm. I guess, 
you know, that aligns with maybe a little bit of that regulatory pathway too. You know, I guess what, what does that look like right now with your device and where you're at today? And is there a standard kind of reimbursement pathway or are you kind of creating something brand new here? Ah, uh, yeah, another interesting question. Uh, we we worked with a few consultants through regulatory already. Uh, so we have identified a few predicates. We could probably do a 510K uh, in the next two years. Um, uh, we are using actually a competitor as a predicate, which is, I mean, to us, a very nice thing to have. Uh, good for them. <laughs> they helped us. Uh, so yeah, we are doing a 510K for a monitoring indication, and we are, we are going to use, I mean, we are not going to build for remote patient monitoring codes, but we can charge, you know, the amount of dollars that usually uh, you could charge. Like every other company charging, you know, $60 per patient per month. And ideally, so this is one of the interesting things that we are doing that is very different from every, everybody else is that we are doing a breakthrough designation too. So we are about to submit our paperwork in the next 30 days or so before the end of the year. And uh, we are estimating, you know, a breakthrough designation, uh, probably you know, approval in the next sixty days or so. We are hoping to get our own code through the TCIT rule that I guess Richard you're very familiar with. Um, something that is still in the works that it has been already you know like sort of like approved by Medicare, still a program is you know a work in progress. But hopefully, you know, by the time that we are ready. Three, to four years, we could probably use that as a leverage to to secure an NCD, our own code, especially for reproductive algorithm diagnostics, uh, exacerbation diagnosis algorithm. Is that the main indication there then of your device? So, not really. So uh, low, stepwise approach is like every other company working digital health, right? We could do it. So the 510K is for a monitoring indication. Like for example, we're going to use a digital stethoscope that can show you spectrograms. And we are going to call that acoustic resonance spectrogram as a proxy for a trapping, which is our main differentiator that is an exacerbation biomarker. Technically, we cannot say we are telling you their trapping number, yada, yada, yada. So lower hanging fruit, like many other companies are doing, remote modern companies, they don't necessarily need the actual, you know, like a big fancy number. They they are mainly, you know, that billing because of what they can uh, actually, you know, do for remote motoring, um, you know, the typical vital signs. They are already using the oscilloscopes anyway. And then for the predictive algorithm, that is something that, you know, we are actually have to do a lot of clinical trials to actually demonstrate how good we could be. Drug trapping, uh, we, throughout the breakthrough designation program, we are going to ask these questions to FDA. Can we usually, can we actually use uh, the big hospital machine as a predicate to do a 510K for their trapping number? Or we, do we necessarily become a de novo situation here? So I'll give you that answer <laughs> the next year or so, because, it's tricky. It's tricky because nobody has ever tried to do this non-invasively at home. Every every other company is building a small little spirometers, right? Like incremental innovation that spirometers have different colors, different sizes, et cetera. But nobody has ever tried to do lung function using sound without asking patients to blow out. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we might be at the novel. Yeah, well, that's kind of what I was thinking. I mean, it definitely sounds like your technology is still very much unique versus, you know, other 
technologies on the market. But um, I guess what's the feedback from like from physicians, you know, and I know you mentioned that you're planning to talk to, you know, a, a number of patients over the next year, but what about physicians and what's their involvement been? Uh, I mean, I'm a physician. I talk to a lot of my colleagues. They they love the idea, but they are also extremely pragmatic, right? Like, uh, I mean, as we are, we have to be very pragmatic. Like, Maria, this, okay, it's great. This is going to change everything we do. I mean, for the good of patients, obviously, you're going to need a lot of money to bring this to market, a lot of clinical trials, et cetera, et cetera. So the way how they see it is like, you know, it's going to take so much effort and money to generate the clinical evidence so that we can change things forever. And and that's one of one of the main reasons uh, why we are doing a lot of grants too. Um, NIH, NSF, they've they been very, very good to us. Um, they liked it, the idea, they like innovation, they like our approach and, you know, I mean, just the potential of saving millions of lives. It's something that they really, really like. So yeah, I mean, like, I talked to a lot of them. Actually, many of them have already invested in the company. Uh, we have a clinical site in Florida with one of my pulmonologist friends where we are testing about six to eight people every single week. We are testing patients with COPD, with, with asthma, with COVID, with long COVID, and even smokers. Mm. So, yeah, they are excited, but at the same time, it's like, Poof, you're crazy. <laughs> Why are you doing this? But that's what makes them such great partners for you, right? Because uh, yeah. that's that's what they have to do, you know, and they have to look out for your, you know, the best interests of of not just you, but the future patients um, that, you know, and, and other physicians that will be using that technology to help diagnose uh, and treat. So it makes a lot of sense. But this all, Richard, comes with challenges, right? I mean, that's something yeah. we, you love to dive into. So yeah, I feel like we've yeah, kind of touched on it. a few through the conversation, <laughs> but I'm wondering now, like you mentioned around building this with off-the-shelf products, and that to me was really interesting. We see a lot of people who take this approach when they're building their MVP, their minimum viable product. Now, mm -hmm. how's that been for you in terms of like getting access to the stuff you need? Has it been a smooth process, an evolving process? No. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, building a company has been, I mean, fun. Super fun. I love challenges, but at the same time, you know, mm, many gray hairs. Um, so it's interesting. So there are a few things. Um, I have my own personal biases, right? Um, I wanted to solve a problem that could have a global impact. Um, being from Colombia, also, it's something that I, you know, I always bring it up, right? Where where I come from, we realized that if we wanted to build something, it could be, you know, extremely expensive. An ultrasound sensor costs, I don't know, $500, sort of. Uh, so my husband, he works for Google and he's one of like the audio experts for all things technology for the Google Pixel phone. And I, I was inspired by his, his work because he's always talking about sound and speakers and microphones, right? And I when I came back a few years ago from a business class that I took at UC Berkeley after interviewing a couple of people, especially pulmonologists, they were the ones who were telling me, Maria, pulmonary volumes are changing in exacerbations. We see air trapping, air trapping here. Always mentioning, you know, air trapping. And that's when I came to him, like, you know, I have this crazy idea. Can we use, can we make the lung resonate and figure out when somebody's trapping air? And that's how everything is said, right? Uh, so it was my grandmother, Plus the fact that I happen to be luckily married to a guy who is very good at audio and digital processing. 
So again, I, I told him, I want to use something that is super cheap so that we can go to like Latin America, Africa, Terra, Terra, or Asia. And then can we build something that it's mainly, can we use the magic of software? Can we actually like, you know, use all these computational power and machine learning algorithms and yada, yada, yada to figure out the lung? Can we digitize the lung instead of using a mechanical process of blowing out through something that it's very old school, 174 years since the spirometry was invented to, you know, update it with, you know, actual, you know, pixels and, and things, you know, computers, right? Software. Um, and that's how everything came about. Uh, and then obviously the pandemic hit. <laughs> oh my God, that's very true. Yeah, I mean, like technically the company started five years ago, but honestly, we've been working on it for just about three years because with the pandemic, we couldn't test anybody. We couldn't take them to the pulmonary function testing lab. They need to blow through the thing. We couldn't. And more importantly, the chips, you know, there was this shortage of chips everywhere in Asia. That was painful. Painful. So we we got delayed for about a year and a half. We had to talk to NIH. We did a bunch of no cost extensions, always trying to explain them why we couldn't hit our milestones on time. It was very challenging. I'm I'm happy that it's over, that we can finally do something of meaning. It required a lot of resilience and patience. Yeah. Well, it was super hard. It it sounds like though we're uh we've got our sights set on. Now, some maybe future milestones, right? That's all in the past. Let's focus on the future here. What do we got in the next 12 to 18 months, Maria? What can the people expect from Samai? Oh, I love this question, actually. Uh, so, yes, we have a plan. Um, breakthrough designation. I'm kicking off my fundraising uh, right around March, even though we are already on due diligence with two funds of the Bay, in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. um, Right after that, we are we are already working on a strategic and a proof of concept pilot that it's being uh, funded by the National Science Foundation. We are hoping to secure at least a contract with them within the next year or so. And and again, I mean, the nice thing about clinical evidence or data is that it changed things entirely for the company. Um, so now that I have data, that I have you know a white paper that's already there, I, we we have we decided not to publish uh, on a peer review journal at least not yet. So we've had, you know, the opportunity to show this data to a bunch of like, you know, strategics, either startup companies working on therapeutics, pharmaceuticals, medical technology companies, even pulmonologists with large clinics, hospitals too. And most of them were willing to write, you know, sort of like a letter of intent or support saying, Maria, if you say, if you have a product that does this and this and this, we will definitely deploy it. I mean, the, the, the problem is so big hasn't been solved. They use just questionnaires. I mean, to me, it's so obvious Absolutely. that they are gonna, you know, adopt and implement. I mean, fairly, to me, it's fairly straightforward, right? I mean, we have the clinical data, we would just go to conferences, we would educate a lot of people, generate a lot of traction by, you know, showing the evidence, you know, the proof. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and something you mentioned before, which I'd love to circle back on, is that you're working on this with your husband. Um, you know, how's that been in terms of this family business aspect? And, and I should mention as well, you know, you were part of our impact cohort at the beginning of last year, yeah. and since then you've had your baby girl, and you know you're working on this as a family. It's you, you know, you've got a lot of things going yeah. on. So I always salute your leadership on on doing all this as a, you know 
as a mom and, and just flying the flag for Colombia as well. Yeah, oh, thank you. Yeah, we, we call it the family business. He's still working for Google. Obviously, you know, we we, we need uh, to support ourselves and he's doing actually pretty well there. There, um, He he has teams and he's leading about 12 projects. So um, so we, it, it's interesting. <laughs> we work, he works a lot, as you can expect. Uh, I have a nanny. Uh, she works for me for about 12, 12 hours. So it's pretty intense. We have meetings at 6 a.m. with our Latin American team, and we work from 6 to 8.30. Uh, and then he works for Google and does everything else. I mean, he technically, he's not a... I mean, he's not working for us full-time. He's helping me manage the, the engineering team, um, obviously, because I'm not an engineer. So even though I can understand the engineering part, probably 70% at the time, I mean, like right right now, um, I'm, I'm not a coder, right? I, I'm not a software engineer. I don't know much about architecture. I can definitely tell you what's going to work or not, like what is it that patients want, you know, or doctors want, et cetera, but he's the one managing that and everything else, it's me, including the baby. <laughs> so yeah, it's been interesting. It's been good. Uh, he he tolerates my intensity. I mean, obviously that's the reason we're still married. Um, so in a way, I mean, I'm super thankful to to his support. Um, because we wouldn't be a company today without them. Not really. Wow, that's a beautiful thing. It's amazing how this world works, isn't it? Just like how it brings together certain people, and because yeah. of that, look at what you two have been able to create. Um, I think reflecting kind of back on your experiences so far as a founder, um, a mother, a wife, all in doing, you know, and building something so life-changing and life-improving, I guess, what kind of learnings or advice would you have to other aspiring kind of entrepreneurs or innovators in the, the med tech community? Oh, gosh, I get this question a lot, Niall. Um I always tell, so I have a different mentality in a way. I don't know if it's probably because I'm a doctor or what. So I'm very pragmatic. Uh, if you, I mean, there is so much, everybody has been romanticizing entrepreneurship for so long, right? Like everybody wants to be an entrepreneur because it sounds cool or whatever. You could become a millionaire, X or Y reasons. To me, it's more of, um, I always tell people, if you are sure that you want to spend the next 15, not, not 10, not five, nor eight, 15 years of your life, especially if you're building healthcare, to something that really moves you, right? And like every time you wake up, every day that I have, every single day, I have to solve a thousand problems. That's the work of a CEO. So I'm a problem fixer. So if you're willing to live a life, of problems for 15 years but that you know it, it makes it fulfills you every time you go back to bed then you do it right mm. and you just keep fighting you just keep you know be patient you build your resilience whenever you have a no you go for a yes you just you know stand up again and do the same thing over and over or at least you know pivot a little lighter eight then you become a startup founder but you need to know how hard it is so i always tell people you know the bad news because i don't know i mean especially when i have founders telling me maria how did you fundraise all this money with grants etc et it's like i mean i have an innovative 
you know, approach. We have patents. Nobody have ever tried this before. And more importantly, we are fixing, we're trying to build something that affects some, you know, millions of people. So that's the reason why we can be busy back because it's a huge market, right? Mm-hmm. And people think that fundraising is something that you just, you know, get a lot of questions about like, Maria, introduce me to 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 VCs or investors. It's like, are you VC backable, first of all, right? Sure. That's it. Well, um, it's a very real, it's just like real, honest, you know, advice and, and, and feedback and insights to anyone who wants to be an entrepreneur, really, you know? Um, you saw, I don't know if anyone saw this, but the founder of NVIDIA, uh, just came ah. out. It's like, I wouldn't actually go back and do it again because the grind was just so yeah. much. And like, they didn't really, he didn't get to experience life. Now, yeah, granted, the guy is a bazillionaire, but I mean, you sacrifice so much, you know, and it was exactly. just such a real thing to hear from someone. Um, yeah. So I think it's a great point, Maria. Um, and I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm super pragmatic. I'm a doctor. Sorry, I'll give you bad news probably first. And (laughs) and the other thing, and Mm -hmm. you know what's the other thing that I because I've been I've been chastised because of that honesty, especially with women founders, right? Because just because I'm a woman, right? It's like people expect me to just tell every every other single woman to just go and do it, right? It's it's not like that. You really need to make an educated decision here. You're going to sacrifice so much, so much for it. But as long as it makes you happy, do it, right? Absolutely. And I think it's such sage advice in the fact that it brings it back to how we started this. You you know, you're passionate about the problem. And I think you have to understand this is a real journey that you're going to go on to try and solve that problem. You are a problem solver. You're really great at it. And it's going to be a long journey. And people need to realize whatever that problem they're looking to solve. Yeah. That's all about this thing that you need to keep in mind from day one. Solve a big problem, be prepared to strap in for that long journey. Uh, and again, mm-hmm. I think some people are all, only see the you know the dream at the end, the money, the glory. Uh, yeah. And the reality is it's so different. It's so far away from that. Exactly. Especially because the media romanticizes it. And like I, I live in the Bay Area, right? In the Silicon Valley. Everybody just hears the good news, you know, certainly you can see it. Yada, yada, yada. Come on, people. That's all. <laughs> smoke and rivers yes right absolutely so i'd love to as we close out um today's discussion just thinking about that problem you've obviously got a stack load of passion which is just oozing through in this conversation what is the vision like where do you want to see samai in five ten years time okay do you want the do you want the investors version (laughs) or the true version of it so when I pitch a company, I mean, obviously, I know that I need to build a business that somehow is, to, is going to get an exit within the next five to seven years. So we are planning on an acquisition, right? Um, right after we probably get our approval for the COPD exacerbation diagnosis. But if you ask me personally what I would really like to do, and this is going to sound super crazy, I gonna be I wanna be the first Latina in Medtech to IPO a company in the States. So it sounds super crazy, but I think that I'm very stubborn <laughs> and I've made things um, possible in the past, the things that, you know, sounded extremely difficult, complicated or yeah, impossible for somebody who looks and speaks like me. So we'll see, we'll see where 
the journey will take me, but yeah, I would love to do that. That's a great vision. And, and I don't think that sounds crazy at all. I think the only crazy thing is that you would be the first Latin person to do it. I mean, that's probably the crazier part. Yeah, woman in my tech. Yeah, yeah I mean, like historically, and, and that's one, one of the reasons why I also understand why I think, mean, you know, whenever I talk to investors, just because of the way how I look, I speak, and I don't look, you know, like a regular CEO, right? Um, I sort of, it's not pushback, but I, I get, I feel that there is, they don't think that I can make it happen. Um, obviously, because historically, there is no, not a single precedent of somebody who has ever done it before. So obviously, they need to make uh, their decisions based on like risk. And But despite of that, uh, it doesn't detract me. I just keep working. And every single month, I, you know, I deliver. And, and I love what I do. So, yeah. We'll see. We'll see, Richard. Fantastic, Maria. So how would someone get in contact with you if they wanted to join your team or maybe help with LinkedIn. your funding? Or LinkedIn, there you go. Perfect, bingo. I, yeah, just LinkedIn. It's my new Facebook. Uh, yeah, I make a lot of friends there. Uh, just email me. I mean, if you can email me to Maria at samihealth.com or just go on LinkedIn and send me a DM. That's okay. easy. Perfect, that's awesome. All right, Maria. Well, this was really fantastic. We can't thank you enough for coming on today and sharing your story with us. Uh, you were just an absolute pleasure to chat with today. So mm, thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Wonderful. All right, everybody. That's the show. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of the MedTech Impact Podcast. I'm Kyle Cruz. I'm Richard Migojan. And until next time, keep innovating. Thank <laughs> you.